0: There's a movie that I really liked about um, 15 years ago, it came out. Um, it's generally recognized as not a very good movie. Um, that's a quote from Andrew Best. Uh, this movie is generally recognized as not a good movie, but I like it, and uh, I don't have any shame about that. Sorry, there's something in my eye. Um, anyway, uh, so this movie came out about 15 years ago called The Butterfly Effect. Has anyone seen it? Who, who agrees? Let me ask you this. Who agrees that it is generally not a good movie? <laughs> who has seen it and really likes it? Yes, more people who love it. So, I said like it, not love it. There we go. Um, so The Butterfly Effect, whether you have seen it or not, whether you like it or not, uh, it's a movie about this guy played by Ashton Kutcher, a much younger version Ashton Kutcher rocking the little um, sort of mustache thing. Uh, And Ashton Kutcher grew up and experienced all sorts of um, really traumatic uh, experiences as a child growing up. And he realized, he recognized in college, that he has this weird ability. um, During these sorts of dramatic experiences, he would black out when he was a kid. And he, in college, recognizes that if he reads his journal, he can actually go back in time uh, to those moments when he would black out. And he could redo the story. And so The Butterfly Effect is a movie about Ashton Kutcher trying to kind of redo the story by making all of these subtle shifts in his life. And even if you don't love The Butterfly Effect, there's something you can learn from it. Uh, What you can learn from a young Ashton Kutcher is that even a seemingly subtle shift can have massive implications over time. And... There's a lesson for us here in Acts 17 because this story implicitly exposes, I think, a subtle shift that has taken place, and now we're experiencing the massive implications of that subtle shift that has taken place over time. And so I want to explore that this morning, to locate it, to talk about this shift that has taken place and to kind of cast a vision to kind of dream together about the sort of church we might be if we uncover this message that Paul and the apostles were proclaiming and also living out in this first century world. So to get us there, first we're going to just really quickly kind of unpack and walk through this story so that we can have it before us, see what's happening here. So um, There are two parts to this story, Uh, the first four verses. Part number one talks about Silas and Paul in the synagogue sharing about the good news of Jesus. And then part two, verses five through nine, we see the response of the Jewish leaders and city officials responding and reacting to this message that Paul and Silas are proclaiming in the synagogue. So let's track through this. In verse one, we see Paul and his companions passing through these Greek cities and coming to a very important city called Thessalonica. Um, Thessalonica is an important city. Um, It's the capital of Macedonia at the time, and it's located, I'm a Bible nerd, The Robin mentioned if you're a Bible nerd, so I may be the only one who gets so pumped about this, but there's a picture of uh, what's called the Ignatian Way, Um, this ancient road that was uh, constructed by the Romans in the 2nd century BCE, And so here are some uh, ruins of the Ignatian Way. So Thessalonica is a city on this important roadway, so uh, an influential and sort of bustling important city uh, in this first century world. And so that's where Paul and Silas arrive, this city called Thessalonica. And then in verses 2 and 3, we see how Paul... Just like always, I counted in the book of Acts how many times this happens, and it happens over and over. Every single story of Paul going into a new city, this is what he does. This is his pattern. He finds a synagogue. He goes to the synagogue. He unpacks the scriptures and shows people how all the scriptures are pointing towards and finding their fulfillment in Jesus. And then in verse four, we see, like usual, there's something compelling and gripping about Paul's message because tons of people want to. Follow this Jesus that Paul is talking about. So, just like always, there are a lot of Jews, there are a lot of um, Gentiles, there are a lot of Luke, especially um, points out here the prominent women in the city who are wanting to follow Jesus. And then in verse 5, we see the reaction. So, the Jewish leaders see what's happening, they see all of these people wanting to follow this person, Jesus and they're outraged, they're jealous. So I love how Luke writes it here. It's like the Jewish leaders don't have the guts to do this themselves. Like they're not the type of people who start riots. So Mm -hmm. Luke says that they round up some bad characters from the marketplace and maybe pay them to start a riot in the city. And they go to this guy's house named Jason. We don't know, this is the first time Jason shows up in scripture, but Luke acts like we should know Jason. And so maybe in the first century Christian world, Jason was an important and influential person. Um, they go to Jason's house trying to locate Paul and Silas. They can't find them. And so instead, Jason and the other Christians become the scapegoat. They get dragged into the city marketplace. And only one accusation is lobbed at Jason. Um, he's housing these people. He's being hospitable to Paul and Silas and whoever might be traveling with them, telling about Jesus. But there are two accusations that are lobbed at Paul and Silas, and these are important. The first is that Paul and Silas are causing trouble, in verse 6, causing trouble all over the world. And then secondly, that Paul and Silas are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one named Jesus. So those are the two accusations that these Jewish leaders have against Paul and Silas. And then In verse eight, so the Jewish leaders are stirring up all this trouble and then look at the reaction of the city officials in Thessalonica. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Um, The ESV says they were disturbed. And then they arrest Jason and the others, Jason and the others post bond and they let them go because Paul and Silas are the real enemies here that the city officials are going for. So we have to ask ourselves, or at least that makes me wonder, what sort of trouble are they causing? Like why are the city officials so distressed and disturbed and they're thrown into this sort of chaotic turmoil? Like what's, what's behind these two accusations? I wanna unpack for that for a minute because I think this exposes this subtle shift that I'm talking about. Um, So in verse six, there's this important phrase, the first accusation. These are men who have caused trouble all over the world. And now they're here in our city in Thessalonica and they're causing trouble here. Um, This is the NIV translation of the original Greek. And I don't think the NIV uh, captures as much as some other translations, the um, drama of this accusation. Um, N.T. Wright has a translation of the New Testament, and he says it this way. These are the people who are turning the world upside down. These are the people who are turning the world upside down, and now they've come here to Thessalonica. Now, there's some irony in this accusation. Because if, I, th- I think if Paul were to hear it, like they're turning the world upside down, you know, Paul's a preacher, so he likes these sort of bold, dramatic phrases like that. I think Paul may say, yeah, I like the sound of that. I think Paul also may like nuance, if you've ever read the book of Romans, like Paul is a kind of nuanced fellow. Uh, so he may also say, yeah, turning the world upside down, that has a nice ring to it, that'll preach. But then he might say, you know what, but i I nuance it a little bit. Maybe not turning the world upside down, maybe turning the world right side up. Because now Jesus is king and his kingdom is going forth through Paul and through the apostles. So people are experiencing redemption. Creation itself is experiencing redemption. Systems are experiencing redemption. The Beatitudes that Jesus talked about and preached in his ministry, all of a sudden those Beatitudes are becoming the new normal, that the poor in spirit are blessed and the meek are blessed and the mourning, the sad, those are the blessed ones. The kingdom of Jesus is going forward and the Jewish leaders are raging and they're dramatic in their reaction. These are the men who are turning the world upside down because Paul and Silas and the other apostles are challenging any sort of stability that these Jewish leaders were enjoying in their privilege and in their power. Paul and Silas are challenging the traditions and the patterns that these Jewish leaders had in this first century world that at least created, whether it was real and deep or not, it at least created like this facade of peace that at least the people at the top of this sort of Jewish ladder could enjoy. Paul and Silas and others are poking at that and they're disrupting the stability. They're threatening the power structures of the day. So Paul, we're turning the world right side up through the message of Jesus that's going forth. So here's the question I have for us. Would especially opponents of Christianity, say the same thing about the church or Christians today. Like, does the world look more right and just and beautiful and good and true because of Christians? Is the world today being turned right side up because of Christians? I've been thinking about that question a lot this week. And I think in many cases it is. Like there are godly and faithful followers of Jesus all around the world who are doing really good work. The kingdom of Jesus is going forth. Things are being right-sided. There's flourishing. There's hope. There's peace. There's justice. But I think the opposite is true as well. And I think you'd probably agree with me. That in many instances, people may critique Christians. They're not turning the world right side up. They're keeping the world upside down. Like things don't necessarily look more just because of Christians. Sometimes things look more unjust because of Christians. Things don't necessarily always look more beautiful because of Christians. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes things look less beautiful because of Christians. This message that Paul and Silas, Peter, all the apostles in this first century world, this message that they were proclaiming, this message that they were living out was so compelling and gripping and captivating that everybody had a reaction to it. Consider this, consider the great risk that men and women took upon themselves to follow Jesus. Like it cost them something in this first century world. In many cases, it cost them their very lives. This message was so gripping, so compelling, so potent. But I look at our church, especially here in our sort of context, and the church is constantly like repackaging the message. And it seems like people aren't quite as gripped or compelled by it. It seems like oftentimes people are repulsed by the message that the church is Proclaiming and living. And I think that's what's underneath this dissonance. Why is the church today not, in the same way as this first century church, turning the world right side up? This question exposes the dissonance. Because what if there's a subtle difference between the message that Paul and Silas and others were proclaiming and the message that we're proclaiming and living out today? Remember, Ashton Kutcher, what he teaches us, right? A subtle difference, even if it's small, when it's played out over lots of years, it can have massive implications. So what is the message that Paul and Silas are proclaiming? What's the message that they're living out here in Acts 17? And is it even subtly different than the message that we've all been exposed to? The message that they're proclaiming is Really obvious. Like it's right here. Um, Look at verse 3. If you have it, you can put it back on the screen. In verse 3, we see that Paul and Silas, they're in the synagogue and they're explaining and proving, verse 2, from the scriptures, they're explaining and proving from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer. And rise from the dead. And then Paul says bluntly, explicitly, it's obvious, it's right here, right in front of us. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So I grew up in small town Mississippi. And being small town Mississippi, there are all sorts of um, evangelistic sort of programs and events that you get to go to that you get to go to, I guess. Uh, And so one of those that I went to during high school football season, every year, every home football game, there was this event called Fifth Quarter. Anybody grow up going to Fifth Quarter? Yeah, so in Grenada, Mississippi, there were hundreds of high school students who showed up at a church gym after the the home high school football game for not fourth quarter, but fifth quarter. Um, And there's pizza, and people are playing games, a lot of fun if you're a high school student. Um, and then of course it's an evangelistic sort of program. So there's always a gospel presentation. And as far as I can remember, I never heard a gospel proclamation like this, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you. He is the Messiah. I never heard something like that when I was at fifth quarter in high school. There's some things that are unfamiliar. Like if you, if you really are honest with yourself, some unfamiliar and unfamiliar even kind of odd things about that. Like so, so boldly, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, but I'm convinced that this is the gospel message of Paul. In fact, let me show you this side by side with 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, if you were here last Sunday on Easter Sunday, Robin unpacked these few verses in 1 Corinthians 15, but it's worth revisiting. So let me read for you. It'll be on the screen just a handful of verses that show like this is the gospel for the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, if you missed it, this is a gospel. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And then these few verses are so important. Verse three, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the primary thing for Paul. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then Paul goes on to list the hundreds of people that Jesus appeared to, the resurrected Jesus. So I want to show you these verses side by side, so you can see like this is it for Paul. This is it. Paul writes about a lot of things. Like I said, the guy loves nuances. He's a preacher. He's a scholar. Um, but this is it. This is the of primary of first importance for the Apostle Paul, and it's right here in Acts seventeen and 1 Corinthians 15. So let me show you. First, in Acts 17, verse 2, we see that Paul was gathering with these people for three Sabbaths and he reasoned with them, this is very important, from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes twice, once in verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then just in case you miss it, again in verse 4, Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So this phrase, in accordance to the scriptures, is loaded with significance. That like 21st century Western ears, we just kind of pass by and don't see all that's there underneath the surface. According to the scriptures indicates for us, this is really important, that Jesus is embodied in a story. Jesus is rooted in a story. So Paul is always talking about Jesus in the midst of the scriptures, which for him, uh, the scriptures were the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. Jesus is rooted and Jesus to be properly and fully understood has to be rooted in a story, the story of the people of God, the story of Israel. What we like to do, what I experienced growing up, these sorts of gospel proclamations, is a Jesus who's ripped out of the story, a Jesus who's rootless, a Jesus who is disembodied. We take sections like Genesis chapter 3, where sin sort of enters the picture, the fall, and the crucifixion, the cross, and we use those to kind of put together this sort of system, but a system's not a story, and Jesus is rooted in a story. The people of God, the people of Israel. This is why learning and talking about how we're going to read scripture is so important. This is why we want you to come learn from and have conversations around Pete Ends a few weeks at the rabbit hole lecture, because if we're going to wrap our heads around, if we're going to be gripped by this Jesus like these first century Christians were willing to like risk their very lives for Jesus. We have to find a Jesus rooted in scripture. There's another similarity here. Paul says explicitly, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Now, you may see that and be like, Drew, those are different words. Like, are you, what's going on? Are you missing something? No. Uh, So there's this really important word. And if you can read Hebrew, uh, you can read it from the screen. Uh, The Hebrew word for Messiah. And then the Greek uh, version of that Hebrew word is Christos, Christ. So uh, this would be a shock to many in our world, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? Christ is his title, it would be better for us perhaps to say Jesus the Christ instead of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can be uh, confusing. People think, oh, that's his last name. In fact, I've heard one uh, teaching pastor say that he always and his congregation is in the habit of always referring to Jesus, not as Jesus Christ, but Jesus the Christ. Because this title, Messiah or Christ, is more important than we as 21st century Westerners can see upon first glance. Like this too roots Jesus in the sweeping narrative of scripture, the sweeping story of God's people. Jesus, Paul is saying, is the one that you've been waiting for, the anointed one, the deliverer whom Moses, when he delivered God's people out of Egypt Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the deliverer that you've been waiting for, that Moses pointed forward to. This king, David, whom you celebrate and adore. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the king, the appointed one that you've been waiting for. All of the pages of the Old Testament point forward to and cause you to long for this Messiah. When is he going to come? This is why... um, I'm so gripped by and we really try to lean into here at Christ City the church calendar Um, This is why the season of Advent is so powerful Because it's a season where we try to lean into The experience and the story of God's people in the Old Testament as they waited As they longed for as they hoped for as they expected this Messiah this King to come But there's something really important and really shocking here about the Messiah that Paul says, that this is a Messiah who had to suffer. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, Christos, Christ, the Christ, died. This is a suffering Messiah. This is a Christ who died for you, which we're sort of used to. Like, unfortunately, we're just kind of used to, and maybe, if you're honest, even tired of this story of Jesus. But this would have been so shocking to first century Jewish ears. A Messiah who suffers? No. That's, that's heresy, Paul. Get out of here. A Christ, an appointed one, the son of David, the king, the deliverer, who would die? That makes no sense to us. Get out of here with your crazy... We have a a suffering Messiah, a Christ who died. And then like Robin said last week, he was buried. He was really dead. He experienced the full extent of what it means to be human and the worst of humanity. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is more shocking than we're aware of, that there would be a Messiah. There would be an appointed one who would suffer. And then lastly, the third... The third parallel here, that this Messiah did not stay dead. Death is not victorious, but the Christ rose again. The Messiah had to rise from the dead. He was raised on the third day, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. And so that leads us, this third piece, that there's a Messiah who died, that he was buried, but that he rose, that leads us to this this, this, accus, this second accusation that the Jewish leaders lob at Paul and Silas. They say in verse seven that all of these fathers of Jesus, they're defying Caesar's decrees. They're saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Gasp. <laughs> this is why these city officials and this crowd, this is why they were so disturbed. This is why that they were thrown into such this massive uproar. This is why whenever they encountered Paul, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to throw him into prison because these people, these earliest followers of Jesus are proclaiming that there's another king, one who is called Jesus because, and listen to this, This is so beautiful and good. If Jesus is a suffering Messiah who rose from the dead, then Jesus is king. If Jesus is a Messiah, a Christ who suffered and died and was buried and rose from the dead, then Jesus is king. There's no enemy who can overthrow because the greatest enemy death itself has been defeated by King Jesus. Look at how N.T. Wright writes about this in um, a really great book I would highly recommend called um, How God Became King. If you want to kind of explore and unpack and swim in this and live in this for just a little bit more, How God Became King, look at how N.T. Wright writes about it. God really has become king in and through Jesus A new state of affairs has been brought into existence. A door has been opened that nobody can shut. Jesus is now the world's rightful Lord, and all other lords are to fall at his feet. So for Paul and for Silas and for the apostles, for Jason, for the first century fathers of Jesus, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord would have been, Utterly astounding, heretical, shocking, because it's to say that no, Caesar's not the rightful Lord of this world. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Therefore, the world is being turned upside down, or maybe right side up. So, um, back to the question I posed is there a sort of a subtle difference in the stories? or the message that Paul and Silas the message that they were living and proclaiming and the message that we as 21st century followers of Jesus are living and proclaiming. You may think like come on this is just like this is just semantics. This isn't very important. But I'll show you how massive and vast the implications can be. Paul's gospel The thing that's of first importance, if you'll notice, is very, um, it's very sort of present reality. And it's very, um, like, this-worldly. Do you know what I mean? Like, it has a lot of implications for the here and now, and it has a lot of implications for this world. That's why these first-century followers of Jesus were being killed by city officials, by Jewish leaders, because of the implications for this world here and now because Jesus is king now. Jesus is king here. Jesus' kingdom is coming here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we pray together in the the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see it's present reality and it's this world That's the message that Paul and the first century apostles were proclaiming. The thing that's of first importance, the gospel. But at least for me, in my experience, this sort of disembodied Jesus of Genesis 3 and of the cross only is very like future reality, right? Like it's not present reality, it's future reality, like, it's, if you believe in these sorts of doctrines, if you believe in this theory, then you can be saved one day and live forever with Jesus. Like, it's, it's fire insurance. It's not about following a person. It's about believing an idea. It's disembodied. It's future reality. It's otherworldly, right? Like, there aren't a lot of implications for this world because it's all about the afterlife, the future, Paul never talked about that in his gospel. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, in Acts chapter 17, in all of the sermons that he gave in the book of Acts, and all of the right, he never talked about this sort of future reality, other world, it was always here and now, present reality, and it was always this world. And here's why this matters. This is what Easter is all about. Like Jesus really did rise from the dead, Jesus really is king, and we're to be Easter people here and now every day, every week. It's not just one Sunday a year, right? And here's why this matters. Because if we can be gripped by the gospel of Paul, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the apostles, this present reality, this world sort of good news, then we could be Easter people who are turning our world right side up. We could be people who, instead of furthering this epidemic of loneliness that the New York Times and other uh, newspapers and magazines are writing about, we could be people who instead cultivate a space for intimacy and relationship and genuine community, a place where you can belong. If we could be this sort of Easter people gripped by this message of Paul and Jesus, then we would right side of the world. We would overturn unjust power structures in our day. We would write systems of oppression that are wrong and that are harming people. We would pursue justice where there's injustice. We would undo systems of poverty. If we were gripped by a message, a gospel message, and if it's a message that we proclaimed in the way we live our lives and proclaimed with our mouth a present reality, this world message then we would be people who could turn our world right side up. We could be Easter people all the time. Resurrection people who serve a risen king whose kingdom is going forward. A risen king who loves you so much that he was willing to suffer for you, not to hoard and hold on to power, but to give power away. Not to be served, but to serve you ultimately by taking on death itself and conquering death itself. May this gospel message grip us and energize us. May we be sent out into the world as Easter people who are turning the world upside down. So what we're going to do now is, I'm going to pray for us. And while I pray, um, the worship team is going to come forward And before we come to the table to take communion, we're going to meditate on this reality that we serve a risen king. And my prayer is that we'll be so moved, we'll be so gripped, that we'll find our hearts like swelling up with praise for this risen king, that death is not victorious, that Jesus has won, and that Jesus is a risen king. So let me pray. And then after I pray, I want you to stand and I want us to celebrate and worship and praise and meditate on and reflect on and be gripped by this risen King Jesus that we serve. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story. Thank you for the good news of Paul and the apostles this first century gospel message that is so potent and so compelling. And Lord, my prayer is that you would grip our hearts, that we would adore and worship and serve you King Jesus, that we wouldn't just get intellectually with our heads that Jesus rose from the dead, but we'd get it with every fiber of who we are with, our core, with our heart, and we'd be moved to be Easter people in this world here now. And that the world would experience hope and redemption through us, through those of us in this room, through Christ City Church. Would this world be right-sided through us? Pray in Christ's name, the Christ's name, amen.